0: As a black pastor in the early 1800s, he pastored the most historic, the oldest black church in the state of Missouri. He circumvented laws against educating slaves and teaching them how to read by creating what he called the River School. It was a school that floated on the Mississippi River, and slaves would come on the school and it would push off onto the river, and so he would say that he was educating them in Illinois, (laughs) and then would come back to shore, and Slave owners even let their slaves attend this school. Uh, many of them were eager to have their slaves learn to read. This school became a church. This church began attracting people from both sides of the river and began attracting money from freed blacks from the state of Illinois and even from Indiana started coming t- for worship there and bringing their money. And they started a process whereby they would go back and buy slaves' freedom if one of their family members already attended his Church. He wrote a book about this that I read this week. John Barry Macham is his name. And in it he describes the first time this happens was a guy who'd been granted his freedom, and he came to that church for worship and talked about his wife and kids were all still in slavery, most of them in Virginia. So the church began taking up an offering and a collection over the course of many months to by his family's freedom, well, the guy actually grew tired of being away from his family and went back to Virginia and resubmitted himself to slavery. He couldn't bear to be apart from his family. But the church had already gathered a significant amount of money and eventually went to purchase their first slave, which was this guy's son, who was in his twenties. And they purchased him. This guy was married and had kids of his own, and so the church began working to purchase his wife's freedom, his children's freedom. And they began gradually building out his family. This man was working as a carpenter. The first son who was freed became a carpenter in Illinois. And with the help of his church, he was able to raise money to buy the last member of his family, his father, to buy his freedom. He describes it this way. This is the boy writing. Though my father was now 700 miles away from me, I held conversation with him in my head, for he was very near to my heart. After a short time, I was able to walk to Virginia and paid 100 pounds for him, Virginia money. It was a joyful meeting when we met together, for we had been apart a long time. The year was 1811. I was 21 years old. I walked with my papa 700 miles back to Hardin County, Kentucky, where the old man got to meet his wife and all of his children. They had not seen him in years. Oh, I cannot describe the joy at this reunion. There's ethical implications of this, too. This 21-year-old, in addition to purchasing his wife and his own children and his father's family, went to work for the rest of his life. He writes, since that time, quote, I have purchased about 20 slaves, most of whom paid back the greatest part of their money, and some paid back it all. And oh, how their lives are changed. We bought one who happened to be a drunkard, and upon having his freedom, found he was no drunkard at all. Freedom changed his life. The great heart of this passage that we read in Ephesians 1 this morning is this word, redemption. It's a word that has lost its meaning for us because it's almost a Christianese kind of word. We just speak of, you know, we've been redeemed from the power of sin, and we've had our, our sins paid for. We're redeemed. But understand that this word, it's a marketplace word and it's a slave marketplace word. The word redemption, you don't redeem produce when you buy produce. It was a word in the Greek Empire that was used specifically for buying the freedom of people who were unjustly and criminally captured. It's sometimes even translated ransom. Slavery in the Greek Empire is very different than slavery in the Old Testament. Slavery in the New Testament was condemned as sin, it was wrong, it was immoral. And the early church had the practice of going after slaves and buying their freedom as a testimony of gospel witness to the world. And that is the word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 to describe what God does for us in Christ Jesus. He redeems us. And he's talking here about a divide that is greater than the divide between slavery and freedom even. This is a divide that is between heaven and earth. A divide from the world where God reigns in majesty and immutable glory and earth where we live in corrupted sinfulness and frailty. There's a divide between heaven where the cries of holy, holy, holy resound through the ages and on earth a place of tears and sorrow Heaven, a place of love, joy, and eternal happiness within the Trinity. And earth, where there is separation and sorrow and sin corrupts us. All creation groans under the weight of this fallen world, Paul says in Romans 8, while all heaven delights in God and his holiness. That is the gulf that is fixed. C.S. Lewis describes The gap between heaven and hell is the great divorce. Jesus in Luke 16, verse 26 says it this way, between heaven and earth, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to there may not be be able and no one may cross from there to God. Lewis calls it a great divorce. Jesus calls it a great chasm, but the point is there is a gulf fixed. The most insurmountable gap in the universe The greatest divide imaginable and the weight of this separation causes the very earth itself to groan in anguish because of its sin. And yet God has invented, designed a way to bridge that gap and to bring people from the captivity of slavery to sin to the freedom and holiness of worship. And he does so through the process of redemption. That's the one word we want to look at this morning in verse 7. In him we have redemption. This word means buying something, ransoming it back. Certainly a man working to buy his wife and children back from slavery would be a picture of this kind of redemption. We have similar pictures, although way less grave in our own culture. I've told you this before, but when I was living in Los Angeles, my car got stolen. In Los Angeles, we call that Tuesday. (laughs) And the police found it a day later with minus the radio and the car seats. They sold the car seats. I mean, come on. And I had to go to the impound lot and I had to the car jail. I told Madison it was car jail. I had to go bail it out. I had to go buy my car back from the police Paid for it once, now I've paid for it twice. (laughs) And I complained about it. Why do I have to pay 500 bucks to get my car out? And they gave me some song and dance about how that's, you know, it keeps the tow truck drivers honest. You know, that way they're not stealing the cars because you're the one paying for it, not the, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) At least I get a sermon illustration out of it that's redemption, where you're buying something back that belongs to you, it was taken from you, and you need to go pay for it, and that's what God does for us. Now, this passage that we're reading here, verses 7 through 10, I mean, this whole thing from verses 3 all the way down uh, to verse 14 is really one long sentence in, in Greek, and so it's hard to just dump in with a few verses, but even in our few verses this morning, 7 through 10, there is chronology problems all over this place. I mean, earlier in verse 4, it's talking about before the foundations of the world. Verse 7 is speaking of in Christ, in him, in Jesus. We have redemption, present tense. Verse 8, he lavished upon us, past tense, all wisdom and insight, of course, going all the way to eternity past. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 10, fullness of time, looking forward into the future to unite all things in heaven and earth. And so this whole little phrase here from verses 7 to 10, it is spanning eternity past to the cross of Jesus Christ, to your present tense salvation, all the way into the future, and eternity. I want to break up this passage and look at the word redemption through that kind of outline. First, I want to look at the past. Redemption imagined. Redemption imagined. It says that in him, we have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption. That phrase, in him, sometimes in English, you might use a prepositional phrase in something to mean in relationship to him. But this word in Greek, it doesn't mean in relationship to. It means geographically. It is located in him. Our redemption is physically located. It's a physical term. In Christ. We have redemption because we are in Christ. Christ. In Christ is the most common prepositional phrase in the New Testament to describe believers over a hundred times. We are called being in Christ. Our identity is hidden in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 16 says we are hidden in Christ and this is true before the foundations of time, verse 5 says. We have been predestined as adoption through Christ to the purpose of his will. This happens in verse 4, before the foundation of the world. Before God made the world, we were placed in Christ. Now, last week, I talked about some wrong views of predestination and election, some views of predestination. I called it divine duck, duck, goose, <laughs> where we say God just looks at a bunch of people that are there and chooses some and, and not others. Or maybe he looks down the tunnel of time and sees what you're going to do and then goes backwards and chooses you to do what he saw what you were going to do. And those are not adequate understandings of election or predestination for lots of reasons, I mentioned some of them last week, but I want to talk about a different reason that view of election fails. Because in that understanding that God looks at a bunch of people, chooses some and not others, or looks at a bunch of people and sees what some will do, and, do you understand that in that view of people, it has people that exist outside of God that are just there, Where did they come from? Those people that God is looking at before the foundations of time, he's looking at those people. Where did they come from? Are they just there? They're in God's mind. He's picturing them. God, before he made you, pictures you. I mean, you exist because he made you and he thought of you he thought of what you would look like he thought of where you would be born he designed who your parents would be he designed what country you would be in he, des- he designed what what era what dispensation you would live under you live now and not you know you're not one of adam's first children <laughs> he designed you all of you everything about you he made in his mind now this is true of of all of humanity is made in the image of God, but it is particularly true in a different way of those whom he has chosen, verse four says, in him before the foundation of the world, that some of those people that he designs, he doesn't just design and then choose, he actually designs them in Christ. So if you're a believer, appreciate this, if you're a believer, before God made the universe, he thought of you and designed you and set his love upon you. This is what Romans 8 describes as foreknowledge. Foreknowledge doesn't mean that God saw what you would do in the future and just knew about it ahead of time. Foreknowledge means that God knew you perfectly and, and intimately because he's making you before he even made the world. He has you in his mind. And he set his love on his elect, his love on those in verse four says, describes as chosen, notice the same phrase again, chosen verse four, in him. Now we see this again in verse seven, in him. When he's speaking of before the foundations of time, he's choosing and he's setting us in Christ before he even makes the world. He makes the world through Christ. He speaks and Jesus is the word, Jesus, in that sense, is the creator. We are made through Christ. We are made for Christ to live for the glory of Christ. But before we are made for Christ, before we're made through Christ, before that, we are in Christ, before he even makes the foundations of the world's. You don't exist in eternity past as some outside agency, outside of God that just happens to be there that he looks forward to meeting one day. You exist in the mind of God before he makes you. And he made you with a special love upon you to adopt you as his child, to bring you into his family. Now the agent of all this is the son, of course. You're made in Christ. You're made in the son Your redemption is in him. And notice that this is still before the foundations of time. Your redemption is in Christ. Before God made the world, he designed redemption. And that's astonishing. The the cross was not a response. It was the design. God didn't make the world good, holy, and perfect. And the devil snuck in the world and the world fell. And God has been scrambling trying to figure out how to recover ever since. I guess Jesus has to go now and die for people. Now that the world's fallen into sin, knew I shouldn't have left Adam and Eve alone. Five minutes, this is why they can't have nice things. (laughs) No, this is all his design. Now, how can people be morally responsible for their sin and yet God be sovereign over sin? Well, that right there is the mystery, my friends. That's where our minds run out. How can God be sovereign? How can God tell Judas, how can Jesus tell Judas what you're gonna do, do quickly? It's been predestined for the son of man to be betrayed, but woe to the person who does it. Go and do it now. How can Judas be responsible for betraying Christ as he's filled with the devil and yet God is predestined this and the sovereign over all of it? Who knows? But it happened that way. God made the world good, perfect, and holy, and before he did that, he had already designed the cross. The cross is the lever upon which the world moves, it's the focal point of all of history, it's the centerpiece of creation. It's not a response. God hasn't just been planning this for 2,000 years. He hasn't just been planning this for the 10,000 years of the world's history. He has been planning this from eternity past. Before he made the world, he planned to give a pure people as a gift to his son. He planned for the son to be the redemption for those people. He planned for the to send the spirit to the world to draw those people to faith in his son. We'll look at that in the next few weeks. He planned that there would be a multinational, multi-ethnic group of people who are made in the image of God, but have something more special in common, that they are adopted in Christ. Before he created the world, he purposed to show his love for his son by giving his son a privileged gift, namely a a church as a, a love offering, that his son would be the redeemer and that's the father's love for the son and the son shows his love back for the father by saying that he will go and he will, he will die and he will redeem those people and he'll purify them and sanctify them so they can spend eternity praising the father. I mean, this is the reciprocal love within the Trinity. The father's gift to the son is our salvation. The son's gift back to the father is our salvation. Our salvation. From eternity past in the mind of God, he conceives this and he executes it. In Israel right now, in the temple mount is the big dome of the rock. And according to Islamic tradition, that mosque is built over the rock upon which Adam first stood. When the world was first created, it's where Adam first stood. And they would even go on to say it's the same place where Abraham would offer Isaac as a sacrifice. This is Islamic tradition. Jewish tradition goes upon that and says it's the foundation of where Solomon would build his temple, where David purchased the land to build the temple and Solomon would build it. And I'm a little bit skeptical about the truth of, you know, that's where Adam stood. I think there was a global flood that kind of moved the rocks around. But let's play along for the sake of argument. And say that rock in the middle of the dome of the rock is indeed where Adam first stood, and it is indeed where Abraham offered Isaac, and it is indeed where Solomon built his temple, but that's not what it was put there for. The main thing it's there for is to be the rock upon which the cross would be hoisted. That's what all of history is building to, that's what everything is pointing to, that's the common thread that runs through the world. It's going up to Golgotha. And that thread begins in the mind of God as he imagines redemption before he makes the world. Well, first, you have redemption imagined. Secondly, you have redemption accomplished. When God plans something, it's as good as accomplished, of course, but nevertheless, the accomplishing of it remains to happen. From Adam until John the Baptist, thousands of years go by. The flood rises and falls. Israel is planted and exiled and repotted again. Nations rise and nations fall. I mean, the world is moving along, looking forward to the Redeemer coming. But it hadn't happened yet. And this is an important point for you to have in your mind because sometimes people try to get around to the teaching of Ephesians 1 by saying, well, before the foundations of the world, God chose us. But what does before mean if God is outside of time? doesn't just mean present tense. I mean, uh, after all, we could be in heaven right now worshiping with God because God's outside of time. And there's some problems with that. Namely, you're not omnipresent, by the way. You're only in one place at a time. God's omnipresent. You're not. You're not in heaven right now. You're here. Unless you have the coronavirus, you're home live streaming. (laughs) You're in one place. What does before mean? I mean, Jesus took on a human nature. He took on a body. Jesus has a physical body right now. God enters time in a very real way when Jesus takes on human flesh. So whatever before means, it means before that happened, Before the foundation of time, before the first rocks were removed, before light was separated from darkness. That's the before. And now in time, God accomplishes our redemption by coming. Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. That phrase, when the fullness of time, time is singular there. It's this this jar of time. And when it fills up, all the events of the world are filling up, bubbling up in the progression of time. They overflow and Jesus comes. When time was filled, Jesus arrived in the earth. All of the Old Testament is dragging people through, bringing them to Christ. Adam is pointing forward to Christ as the animal is is slain and he's made a covering to cover his skin and his sin pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Noah makes a sacrifice after the flood, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Abraham has his sacrifice of Isaac interrupted because God will provide the sacrifice; He Himself will be the sacrifice, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The wilderness wanderings have all of the the sacrifices commanded by them, pointing forward to the day when the true Passover Lamb would come and ends that whole system. Moses says, "You need to wait for another prophet like me who comes. Only this prophet won't be me; he will be better than me." Point Pointing forward to the Savior. Isaiah says that the Savior will come and will be stricken and smitten by God. Nevertheless, God won't share his glory with another. God himself will be the Savior. All of this pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And when the fullness of all of that is reached, Jesus Christ comes. And here's where the preposition changes in verse 7. In him we have redemption. This is an eternity past in the mind of God. But now we experience it through his blood. That's the word of agency there. We have redemption in eternity past. We, The next stage of it is it actually happens through his blood. There is a moment in time when Jesus is executed. Our salvation was secure before that, before he even made the world, it was secure. But now it is affected in time when Jesus takes the record of our sins on himself. It happens through his blood. And of course there happens to be blood. Leviticus 17 verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you as a payment to make on the altar for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for life. That's Leviticus seventeen eleven. God designs the world in such a way that sin must be atoned for by the shedding of blood. Why did he do that? Because he designed the world to revolve around redemption. That's why. So he could be the redeemer. And so, of course, sin has to be forgiven through the shedding of blood. Christians can lose sight of how graphic this is for the non-Christians. I remember at my, once I got saved, I go home to visit my, my mom and be asked to pray for meals. She wasn't a believer then. She is now, by God's grace. But then she was not. She asked me to pray for meals around the table. And after a couple of years of this, yeah, I don't see her that often, she finally says, hey, can you pray for dinner tonight? But this time, please no mention of blood in your prayer. Okay. Because I realized, like, I'm preaching the gospel in my prayer for dinner. I'm like, Lord, we're thankful for this food. But more than that, we're thankful that Jesus came to earth and led a sinless life and died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Whoever believes this will be forgiven forevermore. Amen. Let's eat. <laughs> it's like, OK, less on the blood. <laughs> and I didn't even notice it. It just rolls off the tongue. We have redemption through the shedding of his blood, what is graphic in the world is axiomatic in scripture. Our slavery was accomplished through Adam's sin, which became our sin. Our redemption is accomplished through Jesus' death, which becomes our death. He dies for us in our place. When a slave had his freedom purchased in the Roman Empire, they would take the bill of sale and they would rip it up and he was free to go. That's the image that is used here in Ephesians, that when you have your salvation granted to you by God. It is because on the death of Christ Christ on the cross, he took your record of sins, nailed it to the cross, and it was obliterated by him bearing the penalty for it. He pays through his death for your sins. This is why the hymn writer can say, oh, this my sin, the bliss of this glorious thought. And this is why you need punctuation on those slides, because otherwise that verse sounds really weird. (laughs) Oh, my sin, the bliss of this thought. No, oh, my sin, comma. The bliss of this glorious thought, comma. My sin, not in part, but the whole. That's the blissful thought. Not part of my sin. All of my sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That Jesus really dies a real death In the place of your sins, why your sins? Because you are in Christ. He has you in His mind. This is why He came to get you. He came to Earth to be a Redeemer for those who are in Christ. This is why He can declare on the cross to Telestai, "It is finished." He declares. Appreciate this. At that moment that Jesus declares to Telestai, it is finished. Your salvation was purchased at that moment. Nothing more has to be done. You are saved. You are redeemed. The sacrifice of Christ shows us that God does not take sin lightly. The death strikes at the very core of the Trinitarian relationship as the father turns his face away, as the son receives the wrath of God for our sins. And the record of your sins is destroyed at the cross. God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to the slave market and finds you and buys you and sets you free. And it says here that he does this in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. I wish we had more time. We could talk about all the depth of the word forgiveness, that there's an actual canceling of sin. God holds it no more. We could talk about the nature of trespasses, any failure to lead a perfect life, any failure to miss the mark. But let's just move on to according to the riches of his grace. There's an abundance of his grace. And where is his grace? In heaven. How much of his grace is there? Infinite grace. Infinite grace. There's love and joy and fellowship from all eternity past within the Trinity as the Father delights in the Son and the Father and the Son delight in the Spirit. It's just a treasury of love and wealth that just pours out in the death of Jesus Christ. It's all seen as he comes and purchases you. And he lavishes, verse eight says, he lavishes this upon us in all wisdom and in all insight, which leads to our third redemption imagined, redemption accomplished and redemption applied. There's a sense in which your salvation is secure in eternity past before God made the world. It's in his mind, it's gonna happen. There's a sense in which your salvation is completely accomplished at the cross where Jesus says it is finished, it is done. But there is a third sense because after all of that cross work, after Jesus dies as an act of atonement for sin, you're not even born yet. (laughs) And then you're born 2,000 years later. Think of all that has already happened by God for you. He has planned you in his mind. He has designed you in his mind. He has brought you into this world. He has already sent Jesus who would die as a savior for your sin. Your sins are already forgiven in the work of Christ on the cross. And now you're born and now you don't love God. After all of that, after the riches of his grace have been poured forth in Jesus Christ, you come along and you do your own thing. You say, I didn't ask to be born. (laughs) You say, I can live how I want to live. I don't necessarily believe in God. I don't believe in His truth. I am all about me. Despite all of that, you're in this world and you're in sin, and you perhaps don't even realize it, but guess what? You're living your life as a slave to sin. Sin is mastery of you, even though you have already been purchased. You are in Christ in some sense in eternity past in the mind of God, and yet you're a stranger to him in this life. You are God's enemy, despite of the fact that his sacrifice for you. You're a stranger to his promises, exiled from the covenant. What can be done? I mean, grace has been provided. It's been lavish upon us, rivers of grace. What can be done? Well, your eyes need to be open, And we'll look at this more in the next few weeks, but you see in verses 13 and 14, that it's the Holy Spirit who will end up opening your eyes. But for now, in this week, look at verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's what has to change. You need to have the mystery of this whole providential working revealed to you. Your eyes of understanding have to be opened. You have to understand the gospel. The fact that God planned this in eternity past and has executed it in time means nothing to you until you have your eyes opened to it. He makes his plan known to you. That's verse nine, making known to us Harold Hunter, who teaches New Testament at Dallas Seminary, writes this in his commentary on Ephesians. Making his plan known to you is a phrase that indicates God shows you the relevance of his revelation in the present time. That's a fancy way of saying that you believe the gospel. I love that line. It's like commentator talk. He makes known to you the relevance of his revelation in eternity past, blah, 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 by getting you saved. <laughs> that you have an encounter with Jesus Christ. You hear of his death on the cross and you believe it. He provided it in the past. He did it in the past. And now he reveals it to you in time. And he reveals it to you with just a flood of wisdom, a flood of mercy. Verse eight, he lavished it upon us. This is over the top language. In all wisdom, this is the plan of God. The Sophia is the Greek word, the, the just the riches of the wisdom in God's mind. And then insight. Insight's a little bit of a different word than wisdom. Insight is, is precise. Wisdom is the flood that God just unleashes, lavishes. It's a flood of grace that sweeps across the world. But the insight makes it a, a laser guided flood. <laughs> It targets individuals. It tags individuals. It snares people and sweeps them along in the flood of grace. Two people will be standing together. One of them will be swept away by grace and the other left there. That's this, this word. It's all discretion. Some translations make it discernment there. It's precise grace. It's a river of abundant, lavish grace that hits you with precision. And it makes known to you the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery of his will, what is that? Well, we've seen this phrase already back in verse five. It's the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. So the mystery of his will is how you are going to be praising God because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. He makes this all known to you by opening your eyes. He set this plan forth in Christ. He's purposed this in Christ, and you're back in eternity past again. He has purposed this and then brought it forth in Christ. Do you catch these words here? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have a united purpose before they made the world. There's no reluctant participants in salvation. The Father doesn't send the Son and He goes protesting like your children up to their room. The Father and the Son don't send the Spirit who says... I guess. What are you doing again? What's the playbook? They're in this together. They have a united will from before the foundations of time. And they execute it in stages the Father creating, the Son coming and dying as our Redeemer, the Spirit coming and drawing us to Himself. This is the mystery of His united will, the purpose. And he's brought it all forth in Christ. It's all pointing to Christ in the cross and redemption. And this is a plan, it says, verse 10, for the fullness of time. Earlier I said, when the fullness of time came, Christ came. It's Galatians. This is a similar phrase, but different. Here, time is plural. When the fullness, and it could be when the fullness of times came. There's different seasons. There's different epochs. And in fact, verse 10, the word plan, it's the Greek word ekonomia, which is the word dispensation. The King James even translates it dispensation. We say that we're a dispensational church. What that means by that is we hold to what's called dispensational theology, that God works through different ages of world history, different stages. He works differently with a united purpose. He worked differently between Adam and Noah as he did between Noah and Abraham as he did between Abraham and Moses as he did between Moses and David as he did between David and the exile as he did in the silent years of the Old Testament as he does in the church. He's working differently with different groups of people with with different reasons, but what unites all of them is that they all point to Jesus Christ. Abraham points to Christ, Noah points to Christ, Moses points to Christ, David points to Christ, the kings point to Christ, the silent years are waiting for Christ. You know what else all those ages have in common, what all those dispensations have in common? That you're saved by faith in the Savior. The word dispensational is very much a biblical word. It's right here in the Greek, plan in English. But this makes verse 10 so rich. It's a a plan for the fullness of time, that all of these different time periods, they're all brought to completion in Christ Jesus. And there's some practical applications of this, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 11 gives you the long line of people. And you know how the chapter ends? None of these received what was promised to them, so that apart from you, they would not be made mature, they wouldn't receive the fullness of their, their promise. So all of the Old Testament saints died in faith waiting for the Savior. And now God adds to them the church. And we have faith in Christ. And so that we're all one body, united. Where are we united? On earth we're united in Christ? But that's not what makes us happy, is it? Look at verse 10. Things in heaven as well. Do you see this cord stretching from the heart of God in eternity past with your face on it into this world to Jesus' cross with your sins on it and into your life right now with your faith in it? And it will end back in heaven as this cord pulls you up to glory because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. He's overflowing to us in grace. Not every one of John Barry Macham's stories had a happy ending. One gentleman who was freed went to work with the River Church. He was a shoemaker. He made boots. And he wanted to buy his family. He went back to Virginia repeatedly buying his children one at a time. His wife was going to be the last one who was freed. Finally got his money together for his wife, made the 700-mile trek to Virginia, down, I forget the city name, but down in South Virginia, and found that when he got there, his wife, the last of his family, had been sold to a plantation in Louisiana. And so this man walked to Louisiana and was not easy, but found his wife. But in the course of time, had no more money with which to buy her freedom. Waiting back in Indiana is all of their children. And now they're down in Louisiana with no money. And so he presents himself to his wife's owner and offers a trade. Let her go and I will be your slave. And they take it. So she then walks back up to Indiana to be reunited with her family, and he stays. He himself was the redemption price for his wife. I hope you see the picture of what Jesus did for you. Purposed before the foundations of time. This man did not walk looking to buy the first slave that he saw. No, he had a name, he had a face that he loved and he would walk until he found that person. And when he found her, he would give himself to give her freedom. Lord, this is what you have done for us in Christ. You have sought us because you have paid for us. You yourself are our redemption. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, that you save all those who call upon the name of the Lord, that you had a love for us so much that you sent your son to redeem us, and now you save us through faith in him. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, Or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.